0: Welcome to IOPod, ISFL edition. We're back with the solo podcast with your boy, IOTorrent, as we talk about all things ISFL. Uh, The last few podcasts have been in the Austin's Podcast um, channel, where we had a lot of Austin Copperheads join in on a lot of conversation. I'm sure those were a lot more fun, as we have uh, an array of personalities. That being said... Uh, I have opted to do a solo podcast this time around because of a few things. I wanted to kind of give my personal insights on this last season, going into a contract year, um, my player, IOTOR. And then uh, I would like, I'm going to end the podcast and bringing back a, a favorite, something that the Austin Clubhouse has been asking me to do for a period of time. I am going to go into another spooky tale of ios ghost stories and the reasoning is is that these uh the last uh, last weekend some friends and i uh traveled up to iowa Ballisca, iowa which is a few hours away from kansas city missouri and we stayed in the infamous Beliska axe murder house and spent the night and so uh, i will be ending the pod with a telling of ios um ghost stories, so if you don't care about what I have to say about this last season um, or the rant that I'm about to go on, um, go ahead and skip ahead to the iOS ghost story. If you're still around, I appreciate it because you happen to give a crap about what I have to say, um, or you're a grader and you want to make sure I just didn't fill this in with a bunch of fluff before I got to the ghost story, so I appreciate that. So, Let's go ahead and talk about season thirty-four here in the ISFL, uh, specifically the Copperhead Country. Um, this last season, the Austin Copperheads did not make the playoffs for the first time in my career. As we finished second to last in a relatively tough division this season, we were seven and nine, so two games behind uh, five hundred, and we only finished above orange county otters now the really strange part about this and i'll kind of i guess i'll kind of get to that in a sec is we had the highest scoring offense i believe in the entire nope i'm sorry chicago beat us out so the second high all of isfl now chicago had 502 points for we had 494 so you know the uh The sim simmed, and it dominated us. Our defense um, definitely didn't help as we gave up 431 points, which was uh, really bad. Um, They're definitely towards uh, the highest. Let's see, third highest in the division. Fourth highest, fifth highest. So, I mean, still kind of middle of the road. Not great, though. And um, definitely played a big role in us not making the playoffs, so... Um, I think currently, I'm just to kind of take a quick look at the playoffs, um, this is, uh looks like the ultimus will be later on this week. As I'm recording this, currently we have the ASFFC Championship between the Outlaws and the ha- uh, ha- Hayahula, I can never say their name, The uh, and then in the NSFC, the Fire Salamanders and the Butchers um, will be facing off against each other, and so... <clears throat> Which is kind of correct, as the those are the two top teams in either division. With Honolulu finishing eleven and five, Arizona finishing ten and five, the top two teams in the ASFC versus the or uh, going against each other in the championship. And then on the NSFC side, against Chicago and the Fire um, twelve and three, 11 and four, respectively. So here we go. Uh, a couple of the issues that I kind of had, and I understand. I've talked to my uh, my team about it, um, and. There's some other factors um, that definitely kind of went into it. Um so I am finally a maxed out defensive end, um, power rusher. Um, especially with the new tweaks, the power rusher should have taken a step forward. Um it, to be frank, it did not. And it's frustrating. It's frustrating. I'm the third highest earning uh defensive end in the entire ISFL currently on the TPE tracker. Um and Io dis did not do well. So this season, he, uh, he uh, had 24 tackles down from 39 the season prior and 43 a season before that. So the second lowest since my rookie year in tackle totals. Uh, three tackles for loss, again, tied for the, for the lowest with my rookie year as I had nine tackles for loss last season. Oh, I'm sorry. I guess the season before that I had zero. Um, missed tackles three, which is the second highest did force two fumbles um which is the highest i had one in prior seasons and only six sacks uh, up from four the year prior to the two years prior um so only six sacks so 24 tackles and six sacks for a top earning defensive end power rusher that supposedly got a a tweak boost in the um uh in the uh, sim and i gotta say i mean this is that's that's those are, those are gar- garbage numbers. Garbage numbers. To have worked towards a character for the last five seasons now. Let's see, I think that's correct. Yeah, five seasons. Be top, be a top earner. Not, I, I mean, I think pretty close to max. Um, and, and still put up twenty four And just not be much of a factor in the, on a team is frustrating. And a lot of this too, and as you might sound like I'm just kind of whining a little bit, is that over on the PVE... And this very well just could be me. This could be the IO Torrent. It could be IO Torrent. The simulation player between PBE and Icefell just does not perform well. Doesn't perform well. Uh, the sim does not treat him well, both in baseball and off football. Now speaking to management over at the Austin Copperheads, you know there's some uh, other mitigating factors. So we have the fact that I am the only defensive end on the roster. <clears throat> We have uh, two uh, good, but just not um, really high uh, overall defensive tackles. We have Lyme, uh, The defense as a whole was pretty weak, and being sort of the only, uh, I guess, top or high earner on the defensive side of the ball made it to where, you know, I guess the Sim adjusted and double-teamed me or whatever it was that I got sort of neutralized. Um, based on the fact there just aren't other uh, parts. I was told that, you know, had we had a couple of uh, higher-end defensive tackles, um, those numbers would get up. And to me, that's, that's fine and dandy. Those are all legitimate uh, mitigating factors for a simulation, for the simulation. But the problem that I have with it is, again, and I've ranted about this since I've entered the league, the defensive end needs to be a higher-priority position. Defensive ends in the right, in the real NFL are absolute game changers. Some of the best athletes on the field. Some of the best, uh, some of the most important positions on the field. I mean, you could, if you had to rank positions on a football field, you could arguably say quarterback, easy, left tackle, or depending on which hand the quarterback throws with, we're just going to say right-handed. So the blind side of the quarterback tackles, so left tackle tip in most, most scenarios to protect, protect said quarterback uh that you know let's look at the chiefs our highest investment is patrick mahomes 500 million dollar half a billion dollar quarterback we need to invest in a high quality left tackle to protect his blind side and we did we got orlando brown so and then after that it's i I think it's defensive end because the only how how best to neutralize one of the best quarterbacks in the league you have one of the best defensive ends that can wreak havoc if, again, I'm using the Kansas City Chiefs as a example here, the teams that competed or beat the Chiefs typically had uh, a pass rush, uh, elite pass rushers that got to him, that disrupted his game, moved him out of the pocket, got in his face, sacked him, tackled for loss. I'm not saying I need to have 30 fucking tackles. That's not what I'm saying. But six for the third highest, I mean, like, so, you know, equating that to the NFL, the third best defensive end, arguably, uh, could be, you know, Chandler Jones or somebody like that, has double-digit sacks. I did a podcast where we went over comparing the uh, ISFL to the NFL in terms of defensive ends, and um, the top 10 sack getters were all defensive ends, or uh, I think eight of the top 10 were all defensive ends. With a couple of outside linebackers sprinkled in, so I expressed my frustration <clears throat> um, for the rough season that we had, and um, you know, now the conversation is about moving a linebacker, and I'm probably going to do that, and that's because I do want to be a playmaker. I don't to be earning at the level that I'm earning, being a first round draft pick to make 24 tackles and six sacks is not something that I'm going to be happy with for for my career. Arizona is somewhat in a position of rebuild. We just lost Moody. He just re- retired. Hopefully we can get him to come back to, uh, uh, to Austin. Um, we're now moving with quarterback 43. Um, and unconfident, our GM is the quarterback. Um, Zoe Watts is pretty much at the tail end of their career. Jim the Vampire is getting pretty pretty high up there in terms of regression. Um, Bailey Cowabunga <clears throat> Uh definitely uh, probably our number one receiver uh, is getting you know actually they're pretty young but I still think they're 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 getting up there Um, and so you know I do think we're kind of in a position here where um, you know we really got to start thinking about the future and so like you know I'm pulling up the numbers here we're kind of in the middle of the road when it comes to total TPE uh, Sam the Onion Man currently the highest TPE, so I guess is technically our number one receiver. I guess Bailey did uh, is just right behind them with twelve oh three. Are both season twenty eight season both both of them are season twenty eight receivers. So two very good receiver receivers are that are season twenty eight. So let's see, that's a eight nine ten. 11. So yeah, getting ready get a hit a hit and regression here soon after seven seasons. Um. I.O. Torrent is uh, the third highest CPE earner, currently at uh, season 30. Jim the Vampire, season 27, is the fourth. Um, and then we got Unconfident, season 30. And then we got Moody, again, retiring. Um, Sage Cameron is the corner is our number one cornerback in season 28. That's regressing. Uh, Patey, receiver, is a season 31, so they're still earning uh, as a number three receiver. Um, Annie May, cornerback, uh, number two cornerback, season 25, regressing. Zoe Watts, twenty season 24, regressing. Daniel O'Leary, season twenty-eight, linebacker, regressing. T'Charius uh, Smith, safety, regressing, season twenty-eight. And then we kind of start getting into our um, our young guys here. So we got season thirty-two, Spicy Ron is a linebacker, season thirty-two, Tobias Worthington, safety, both at uh, Spicy Ron six hundred fifty-seven, safety, and then uh, Tobias five hundred thirty-seven. And then we got a couple more more uh, regress regressing players: Evan Jones, safety, um, season twenty-seven, uh, or sorry, season twenty-six, and then season twenty-seven, Candace, defensive tackle, season twenty-nine, Ivan Tosovic, running back, um, season twenty-three, Tyler Mountain, linebacker, which I think believe I think is a, is the corpse of Tyler Mountain. I believe he retired and is moving on. Then we got another young guy here, season thirty-three, Joe Smokes, linebacker. So we do have two linebackers that are kind of up and coming. And, uh, so, um, just kind of looking at that and, uh, and not being in the war room here in Austin, I would definitely presume, and maybe I'll bring it up at the next awesome podcast, but they're asking me to move to linebacker because I'm griping about being deep about the defensive end position, and just trying to kind of make me happy, um, which is nice. So I appreciate that, but because we, you know, we spent draft capital young, our young up and comers are all linebackers. We don't have anybody at defensive ends, so. Maybe a discussion. We'll see um, about what we're going to do. Because I want to play defensive end. I want the defensive end to be dominant, to be better. You know, to have a higher earner at defensive end is important. And so to move me to linebacker with two young linebackers um, is going to push somebody out of the lineup um, unless we run a 3-4, which I think we do. I think we do run a 3-4. And, uh... I don't know. That's going to have to be a discussion, but it, it is frustrating. I'm definitely frustrated um, with the sim as a whole. Um, the you know we're, we're you know Arizona. I'm not. I'm sorry, Austin. I'm not used to seeing us down at the bottom of of the uh, of the uh, pole here. Um, bottom of the league. Definitely. Even though we were one game away from the playoffs, I mean, had we won uh that last game we would have we would have been in the playoffs so which tells you how close it really really was um, so let's see here I'm gonna go back to I wanna look at some stats here to kinda keep this gripe train going. Oop it's not working here. Anyway again, so let's take a look at the sack leaders here this this season. So the We got one, two, three, four linebackers. Um, They're 19, 19, 17, 17. And then we have a Berlin Salamander. uh, Brando, defensive end. Marlon Brando, defensive end. 50 tackles, 17 sacks. So, just to keep me kind of guessing here. Let me take a look. (coughs) Oops. <coughs> Where is Marlon Brando? On man, that's crazy. Fifteen hundred TPE players, offensive lineman. Fifteen hundred man. Stumpy Jones is an absolute beast. All right. So um, okay, let's get that Our offensive line. Okay, and now we're finally to the defensive line here. So we got a. Uh, DeWalt, so I love hot salads, is the number one um, defensive end. uh, Also a Berlin salamander with 1,279. David Frank is the um, second. These are both season 29 guys. Speed rusher uh, at 1,270. Then Io Torrent power rusher, 1,124. And then Marlon Brando, there you are, season 27, uh, speed rusher, 987. So that's the other thing that I see is that definitely speed rusher appears to be much more um, prevalent and probably the better of the three archetypes of defensive end. And so it definitely looks like there's a lot more speed rushers. And, you know, when I created, I thought about speed rusher, but I wanted to be the power guy. I wanted to be the TJ, or the, uh, the JJ Watt, um, Campbell, you know, big, strong defensive ends. Maybe I'll switch to speed, see if that changes anything, but definitely it probably helps that Berlin has two of the top tier, um, defensive ends in the, uh, in the league. So then we don't see another defensive end for, let's see, one, two, three, four, he was the fifth, so five. 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Number 12, Lucid Dreams um, with 14 sacks and 48 tackles. Another really good, really good season. And Lucid, where are you at on here, big buh, Big Big dog? Lucid Dreams. You got to be, there you are. So season t- 29, uh, 1,069 defensive end. So, season ahead, but um, about 100, 100 TPE below me. Um... on the list here and then the next one after that so we had Lucid Dream and then it kind of we start hitting the defensive end so Hot Salads was the number one defensive end had uh, 27 tackles and 14 sacks so 14 sacks but only 27 tackles that seems kind of low it definitely looks like uh, Barando with the 50 tackles Um, they definitely ran to his side significantly more and then uh, we got a slew of tight end defensive end here. 13, 13, 13, 12, and 11. So, um, uh, you know, just, let's just take a look at the at the tackles here, too. 77, that's impressive. 53, 35, 82. Unreal. Um, and then Taylor. So... Um, you know, just overall, uh, you know, 24 tackles and six sacks. So, let's just see here for shits and giggles. Here I am, way down here. Um, I mean, you guys scroll pretty darn far. Tackles for loss. I had nothing. I had nine last season, which would have put me in the top ten. Um, yeah. So, just, um... Hasn't been a fun season all around between, you know, the statistical disappointment that Io Torrent has been, and, you know, here's the other part, too. So over the PBE, I just did a retirement podcast where I talked about Io's uh, 12 seasons in the PBE, two years, uh, real lifetime that it took to get there, and... <clears throat> You know the journey was really great. It was really great. You know, doing you with know, Sarasota for I believe seven seasons, and then uh, I went on to play at a bunch of other places. And then you know, so the journey I got to meet a bunch of people, the relationships. I did PBE Rewind, all this stuff. Right, did a whole podcast on it. <clears throat> Check out the IO Torrent PBE Retirement Pod. But the thing that again, that is, and I think is really kind of the reason for the frustration, is now that I'm in two sim leagues, I haven't. This is the only two sim leagues I do. I'm earning uh, at a at a pretty high clip, and neither player seems to be just panning out. So it's just getting frustrated. So yeah, I'm here for the relationships and here for the fun. The locker rooms, Austin's a fantastic locker room. The awesome podcast is an absolute bat blast. Everybody's everybody's great. Um, but when it comes to the sim, when I look at these, when I watch the sims on stream, when I go back and look at stats the following day, and I see these just, and I see that these players that I'm putting a lot of time and effort into aren't doing anything, panning out, or just. You know, <laughs> uh, disappointments. It, it, it's it's just it's frustrating. So like, what can I do? What am I doing wrong as a user to have back to back sim players in two totally different leagues, two totally different sports, two totally different engines just be garbage? You know. So you know maybe you know maybe the move to the linebacker will be good. Maybe I just come out and dominate the linebacker. Um. Let me kind of just take a look here. The Linebacker numbers, I'm sure they're significantly different. So (laughs) taking a look at the linebacker TPE tracker. The highest earning is season 28 Bender Rodriguez at 1,454, followed by Xavier Walls at Honolulu with 1,294. Dexter Hall, season twenty eight, one thousand two hundred fourteen. Ernest Lever, uh, season twenty six, one thousand one hundred eighty seven. So I would be one two three four. I'd be right in the top five. Oh, Glenn Smart switched to linebacker. Season twenty eight. Big Slam Moose switched to linebacker. Domino's Pizza Man switched to linebacker. So a bunch of uh, ex defensive ends have switched to linebacker. Um, and I'm, you know, even though I'm outpacing the number one overall pick in season 30, Sheriff Woody, in terms of TPE. So maybe I do need to switch linebacker. See what happens. I got one more year in the contract. Um, season with Austin. Um, I'm not going to take the option. I'm going to stick around for another season, finish up the contract, and switch to the linebacker, see how it goes. But, I mean, truth be told, I can't, I, I got to be honest with you here on this pod. If the trend doesn't change and i'm not looking for mvp numbers i'm not looking to be the number 1 guy i'm not looking for that i'm looking to be relevant <laughs> i'm looking to be you know somewhere in that top 10 conversation because i'm going to be i'm going to be hitting regression here in the next couple of seasons so let's, let's just be in the conversation top 10 top 8 and if that doesn't happen you know then maybe it is i got to get checked out a different system See where I can get him to be optimized. Uh, I don't think um, I think our window of opportunity for a championship is is a little bit, maybe a few seasons down the road. Just not looking at our TPE numbers, um, I think if we make some big big pickups in the off season, maybe you know add a couple of playmakers on the defensive side of the ball to really help. We have the offense with our receiving core and our running backs for another season or two. I don't know what the plan is for up-and-coming running back help um, after Zoe Watson and Jim the Vampire. I haven't looked that far ahead. I'm not in the the war room discussion. Um, But just kind of just outside looking in, um, it definitely looks like the the window is not probably in the next two seasons. I could be totally wrong. Like I said, we could pick up some players and have some stuff in the making to where Austin's back up at the top the turnaround here in the ISFL seems to be pretty quick. Teams rise and fall pretty quickly here in the ISFL from season to season. Um, Honolulu was, I think, down towards the bottom. Now they're in the ASFC championship. So yeah, I do, I do want a championship. I want to play in the playoffs. Playoffs have been great. I want to win a championship, but I want, I want to try and see if I can create a player that actually does something that actually is in a conversation for and, you know, a Pro Bowl All-Star game that is actually in the conversation for any type of an award at the end of the season that is relevant. That you pump these time and effort into a player and they don't do anything. I want to see it. I have 0 for 2 so far. I recreated over at the PBE with PAX Torrent. I'm really striving to make him a max earner. I'm really putting a lot of effort into him. <clears throat> Hopefully he does much better as a pitcher. Um... And, uh, so, you know, just, um, you know, I just, I just kind of want to, I, I just, a I, I, I change may be necessary to see if something happens with IO. Now I don't want to leave Austin. I love the Austin clubhouse. Um, it's been great so far. I'm not, that isn't what I'm saying. I'm just saying that, you know, if I make the switch and, and the player doesn't seem to do anything, maybe moving into a different system might help. I don't know. You know, with Io, the PBE player, you know, he had a couple of great seasons in Sarasota. And when he went to New Orleans and he was surrounded by just the most devastating power hitting lineup in the history of uh, PBE, he had the best season of his entire career, finally. And so maybe that's kind of what is necessary, a change of system, maybe Go to a team that has some established defensive players to help out and see what happens. I don't know. I'm just kind of spitballing. I'm just kind of speaking out loud, um, figuring out what I'm going to do with this player moving forward. So I'm going to go ahead and pause it here. Um, This is uh, part one. Stick around for part two. We got a little bit more to talk about with the season. I'm going to stop griping. I'm going to get in a better mood. It is early in the morning, so I'm just in a gripey mood. Get the mood back in order, talk about some more friendlier stuff, and then eventually and then uh, finish off the podcast with the um, the reason why most of you are probably here, the uh, IO's ghost story. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned. All right, welcome back to part two of uh, this uh, podcast for ISFL, IO's pod. Um, So the first part we talked about my season and the overall uh, disappointment, I think, of IO's uh, career thus far. And so we're going to move on to some more stuff. Let's talk about this season. So season 34. Um, we had the return to dominance of the Honolulu Haluaa, eleven and five, scored four hundred forty points, three hundred eighty one against. Um, overall, pretty solid team. Arizona Outlaws still top of the pack there, ten and five, one hundred fifty eight, three hundred sixty three. One of the more dominant defenses in the entire uh, league. New, uh, New Orleans second line is the eight and eight, um, th- uh, tied for third. With the New York Silverbacks, uh, you know the thing about New Orleans is, you know, since I've been here, they've always kind of had a rough go. And honestly, they had one of the second worst defenses in the in, in the ASFC uh, with giving up 440 points, and they they were third. So that this is a example of some sim luck, I think, that really helped uh, New Orleans finish well tie for finish at third. Um, New-, New York silverbacks uh, fourth place eight and eight also kind of a middle of the road they they scored 462 points which is uh, second highest in the league so kind of on the other side of that spectrum with with second line as they only gave up 415 uh, sim kind of hurt them a little bit I think I had them finishing a little bit higher in the division than they actually did San Jose Sabercats seven and eight even though um, finished the season seven and eight I think uh, definitely a pretty big jump forward, even though they had uh, the second-worst offense in the league, just above the Orange County Otters uh, with 380 points for, and they gave up 454. And I think, again, this is a, another Sim League, uh, Sim, gonna-Sim type team here, as on paper, probably shouldn't have finished 7-8, and eight, probably should have had a little bit worse of a record, but ended up finishing above my Austin Copperheads, who was 7-9 and nine with the highest... Points for in favor of the D on the offense at 494. We uh, gave up only 431, which is kind of middle of the road when it comes to the defense. The sim just devastated us. Now it kind of makes an argument at this point. As I pause on our quarter, our two quarterback system. So I think it was the first time we've ever there's ever been a two quarterback type system uh, with Jackie Daytona uh, and Unconfident kind of double teaming the quarterback duties. Uh, Really good passing, or I'm sorry, really good receiving core with uh, Onion Man, uh, uh, Bailey Kalabunga, and Patey, and then two really good running backs, Jim, you know, the Vampires, Zoe Watts. And I think the thing that just kind of was interesting is they did different things, I think. And so uh, it was a really, really potent offense. It did it definitely seemed to uh, help out. Um, but the Sim, simmed, And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a little deep dive. Uh, Orange County went 5-11. and 11. A little bit of fall from grace. Uh, not a good offense and a pretty... Um, Pretty average defense, but I kind of want to take a look here <clears throat> a little bit more in Austin's season. So, they lost 30-27 to 27 against Arizona Week 1. They lost uh, second line, destroyed us at 37-14. Um, one of our worst offensive performances of the season. Uh, they lost 28-22 to 22 against the Berlin Salamanders, which are currently... Uh, playing uh, one game away from an ultimus. They lost 27 to 24 against Philly. They lost 43 to 35 against Honolulu. Again, also playing one game away from an Ultimus. Arizona they lost 40 to 34. Baltimore, they lost 30 to 24. Sabre they lost six, 19 to sixteen. And then they lost again. They got swept by New Orleans uh, 38-28. But if you kind of look at the margins here, the, the, the losses are such a slim margin. A victory for the other teams here. That had they gone the other way, I think Austin would have found themselves again pretty, uh, pretty tight in the playoff race. Definitely would have been in the playoffs for another season. And it was just one of those, one of those seasons. Sim, sim, definitely gonna sim. Um, you know, overall, offensively, a pretty darn good, um, pretty darn good season. Uh, so let's take a look uh, over at the other side here. Up, yep. oops. What are we doing here? Sorry. Uh, the on the uh, NSFC. So Chicago went twelve of three, the best team uh, or the best record in all of the ISFL this season. One of the most dominant offense at five hundred and two points, and they only gave up three hundred and fifty seven. Chicago just an absolute beast of a team this season the um, berlin fire salamanders 11 and 4 uh, had 442 points for 396 super solid defense sarasota sarasota sailfish um 10 and 5 uh 484 404 good good very very stellar defense philadelphia had a, uh, a really excellent defense only giving up 408 but the offense was uh, pretty poor 355 Yellowknife, um, six and ten. Baltimore, six and ten. With Colorado, fall big, big, big fall from grace. Two and fourteen, worst, uh, worst record in the ISFL. Gave up five hundred and fifty-six points. It's just, just a rough, rough go for Colorado this season. Let's take a look at some of the passing leaders. We had a rookie from Colorado, even though we just kind of talked about them having a rough go. On defense he did lead the league in uh, quarterback play in passing with 5568 um, that's laugh love uh, he threw 39 touchdowns and uh, could have an argument for a uh, a rookie of the year type type or definitely a rookie of the year I'm sorry MVP like season with a pretty decent quarterback rating of 95.2. But the problem is is that they played, they played on the worst team in the league. So it's kind of that interesting argument. Does the MVP go to the worst? Can the MVP play for the worst team in the league? He's definitely the most valuable player to his team, but they only won two games. So that's a tough go. Oles Jr., who's been a mainstay quarterback with Chicago, 4,891, had 35 touchdowns. Again, another MVP candidate, but with the best team in the league, um chicago uh but you know had almost uh a hundred 800 yards less than laugh love the rookie in passing yards had four less touchdowns um did have three less interceptions and a slightly better quarterback rating um dust of parmalee good good pal of mine quarterback of the yellow had uh 4,675 and uh wendell sailor 4,604 yards the uh Touchdown leaders, again, Lafleva, Les Jr., and Knight. Uh, what you don't see there are the two quarterbacks for Austin. So they, Jackie Daytona threw for, um, I think this is uh, the two quarterbacks are the two bottom teams, and that's because they, they're the only team that's split duty. So 2,426 passing yards for Daytona, 2,184 passing yards for uh, 82, or uh, confident, 20 passing touchdowns for Daytona. Uh, 15. So if you look at it collectively, they threw 35 touchdowns collectively, which is uh, second highest in the league. And they threw for um, 4,500, 4,600 actually, um, which would be good for uh, top three, top four in passing guards. So collectively would have been a top five quarterback (laughs) in the uh, in the ISFL. Almost dropped my stuff here. Um, All right, so now we got uh, running back. And um, Goat Tank with Berlin, uh, kind of a journeyman. I think he's now played on a couple of different teams. I think he was with uh, Orange County last season. Uh, Led the league with uh, 1,701 yards, um, 10 touchdowns. Uh, JQ Jr. had 1,652 yards, 19 touchdowns. And Cobra Kai had 1,540 yards. 14 touchdowns with Q leading all rushers with 19 touchdowns followed by, uh, Huntsman and Kai Huntsman with Sarasota had 18 touchdown rushing touchdowns, pretty solid seasons there. Now let's take a look at the receiving core. No surprise, no shocker here. Colorado's Cole Maxwell had 1,874 yards. 12 touchdowns was the number one target for the top quarterback in the league. Um, brought uh with the yellow knife had 1476 uh sam Spen- or uh, spence had 1466 Kawabunga 1440 lord sombre 1415. um passing touchdown wise the onion man from uh, austin had led all receivers with 15 touchdowns with maxfield waterfalls skip all tied with 12. cowboy in there with 11. so the two austin receivers definitely um in the conversation for possibly being the the best two receiver duos, um, uh, and so I mean, it's, this will be a really interesting um, MVP conversation. Mostly because that conversation—I I mean, statistically, I mean, you would go with that with the the, the rookie quarterback, Laugh Love, who led the league in receptions, with second and touchdowns, um, but it, you know, played on the worst team. And so, it's an, I think that's an interesting debate. If you look at the pure statistics, um, he's up there. Now, could that be because the offense had no other weapons and he basically had to do that for them to be competitive and only still only win two games? Yeah, um, as an argument. And um, only winning two games, does that hurt him? I think so. Um, to be the best, consider the MVP or the most valuable. Is, is it the most valuable player for your team or is it the most valuable player in the league? And to be the most valuable player in the league, you feel like your team you should be able to bring your team up a little bit. I think had he won, had had Colorado won a few more games, maybe just didn't finish last, would definitely be in the would be in the conversation. If they would have just maybe won a few more games, so that's going to be a tough go for um, the voters there for the MVP. Definitely um, a rookie of the year though for sure. So let's look on the defense side of ball. We got Colorado's. Uh, McKitts, uh, leading all tacklers with 131 uh, linebacker, he had 7 sacks on the season, 7 tackles for loss uh, Selick, uh, linebacker from San Jose had four, uh, 124 tackles, Glenn Smart 123 tackles, 14 tackles for loss for Selick, 15 tackles for loss for Smart 19 sacks for Smart um, so definitely a defensive juggernaut there and I definitely think being a top three tackler, uh, could have been a top two, had to have been one more tackle, and then just dominating the sacks with 19 being the leading um, sack getter. Smart, for sure, should be in conversation for defensive player of the year. If anything, linebacker of the year. And you know what's funny? All comes full circle. Ex-defensive lineman. when smart, was D lineman. Now he's a linebacker and out here wrecking and earning awards. So, just an interesting little little uh, callback there. Um, let's take a look at some of the other uh, secondary. So we got the quarterback uh, Clark from Sarasota had six interceptions, tied four 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 way tie for first place. Uh, Lincoln's at Bear, uh, Berlin, Zyragos in uh, San Jose, and Orange County leaking had, all had six interceptions with the. Uh, um, Clark having 93 tackles. 109 tackles for Gallagher at five interceptions. Uh, we should probably make mention with Baltimore. Um, could be uh, also in that argument for um, uh, quarterback of the year. Um, defensive lineman of the year that I will definitely not be involved in. Let's take a look at that. Uh, I definitely think... Uh, Brando, with his 50 tackles and 17 sacks, should probably be that guy. Uh, Lucid James, 48, 14 sacks. Um, let's just kind of take a look at the position here. Defensive tackle. Um, two Austin guys had 41-41 tackles. They had more tackles than I.O. <laughs> I'm trying not to be bitter, guys. I'm trying not to be. Uh, it just isn't working for me. Um, Frank had it led the, led defensive ends with 82 tackles, uh, 12 sacks. I think definitely in the conversation, uh, Moyes 77 tackles, 13 sacks, um, Brando 50 tackles. So it depends on what you're looking at. If you're looking at just purely the sack of the, you know, being the top sack getter at 17 Brando. Um, I think Frank, um, with Honolulu with his 82 tackles, nine tackles for loss, is in there? Moyes had 14 tackles for loss, 13 sacks in, in seven episodes. Now, no, yeah. So let's let's kind of take a look at um, David Moyes. Uh, really good season: 77 tackles, 13 sacks, 14 tackles for loss, two forced fumbles. Um, excellent defensive end stats for uh, for Moyes coming out of Sarasota. So. Yeah, great job. Offensive line-wise, we had the uh, busy NFTs bot. <laughs> Colorado had 149 pancakes, followed by B. Sanders, B. Jones, and Schwama. Oh, Honolulu, 133 pancakes. Only gave up two sacks, so it's a conversation for the um, lineman of the year. Overall, pretty uh, pretty solid. Pretty solid performances on the year. So we just wrapped up season 34. Um, We've got a couple of games left, I believe they're tonight, um, as we look ahead at the playoff picture. And, you know, like I said, you know, uh, I kind of... what's uh, Now that my career is about halfway over, let's kind of take a little bit of a pause um, and kind of look at the league as a whole, kind of the health of the league. So a couple of thoughts on my end. I'm re-recreating in PBE, and it's really gotten the creative juice is flowing for me again over there. It's really ignited my excitement with PBE again. Um, I just got drafted by the Chicago Kingpins. I just did a, a hype video for them. I plan on doing some more content. I want to get some content over here at Austin and, uh, over here in the ISFL. The thing is, is that I think having played such a small role, uh, on the team, uh, you know, it was a great honor and a great privilege to be a first round pick to be, such a high coveted pick. I'm really, really trying to earn. Uh, there was a week last season I was unable to do weekly um, uh, weekly uh, predictions. That kind of hurt me a little bit. Probably could have lost me anywhere from you know five to you know maybe even nine. I don't I don't really get threes all that often. But um, TPE, the problem. Uh, I, I reached out to the confident and apologized to him because I was actually in the hospital. Um, It was an interesting situation. I had uh, some tingleness down my left arm, chest pain, um, shortness of breath, and um, stomach, massive stomach issues. That if you Google those or you look them up in in, uh, a health app, it's telling you you're having a heart attack. (laughs) So I went to the doctor, um, spoiler alert, I did not have a heart attack. But that week it was kind of one of those things I probably should have went into the ER and just got it kind of looked at right away. I didn't do that. I made an appointment um, for that week with the doctor. Um, had to go to the doctor a couple times. Finally they sent me to the ER, spent the night in the ER. Doesn't necessarily excuse like a week's worth of missing out, but really it just kind of that week I just didn't know what was going on with <laughs> my health. And so I uh, ended up what it being uh, was actually a cultivation of just all these things that combined equaled out to be what, what was thought to be a heart attack, was not a heart attack. Um, I had a muscle strain in my left pec. I was causing the soreness, tightness in my, the soreness and the tingle down my left arm. I had the flu a few months back and I still had inflammation of my lungs from the flu. It was causing the shortness of breath and just kind of the inability to, to gain my breath. Um, <clears throat> and I had severe indigestion, um, which was causing the stomach problems, the stomach pains and the stomach issues. So altogether, it's, you think you're dying. You know? But in reality, it's just it was the, the planets aligning in a sense and, and all these things kind of happening together that kind of caused this. And so, you know, that was kind of the only time I missed out on any TP opportunities in the ISFL, and so, you know, I'm pretty close to being a high earner, I'm definitely a high earner, pretty close to being a max earner, um, and to just have four seasons now, um, where I don't really, and technically five, but four here in Austin, where I just haven't done anything, haven't, you know, and I, and, 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 and honestly, it's, the team has been great. And I, I got to say that. So the, the Austin podcast is an absolute blast. Um, I do think the Austin locker room is kind of going through a slight change. There's still a lot of your, your your main stays, but you could definitely see there's some new blood. Um, Moody is uh, retired, so he might be joining a new locker room. He'll be a huge loss. Um, but we still got, you know, quite a few folks in there that have been in there quite a while that's still causing. So locker room-wise, it's still one of my top two, three locker rooms in all of... Uh, my sim leagues but the thing that like is just uh i don't know i think i think it's just kind of the overall frustration with the sim um if you look at compare the two sims the sim the BPE sim and i've said this before on separate podcasts is just so much better the uh sitting on a, tw- on a on a stream night and watching the baseball is is to me because it uses outside the park it's the best sim. and it is there's, there's, a, there's a sport to it so like if i were to go back and create videos it's easy to take clips from those streams of the actual baseball happening and show a big league home run, show a big defensive play, show a 1-2-3 inning by a pitcher, you know, whereas with the Sim and ISFL, the um, Wolverine Studios game, it, it doesn't quite have that flair, so to speak. Um, and then also, I don't think there's a whole lot of media in ISFL as much as there is in PBE. PBE seems to be having somewhat of a renaissance with the podcasting and media. And maybe I just haven't really paid as much of attention, but I don't think ISFL has... It was. It was actually dominating there for a while. There were so many good podcasts happening um, and a lot of great media that I definitely would say ISFL was sort of in the lead when it came to that content, that PBE is somewhat kind of going through somewhat of a renaissance and putting out better content. Because I like to listen to podcasts. I like to, when I'm working out, driving, I'll pop in the earbuds and I'll listen to a podcast from an ISFL or PBE or whomever is putting out content. And I just kind of feel like PBE is putting out a little bit better stuff at the moment. <clears throat> I haven't really, I don't pay as much attention to the written stuff as I probably could, and I could be just giving an unfair assessment that ISFL is just dominating in the written game, um, but, when it comes to, like, the podcast, the videos, uh, you don't see a lot of videos coming out of ISFL, um, you know, and, and one of the things I'd like to see, I wish either league, to be honest with you, um, uh, like, ISFL had the, um, the show with Lucid Dreams there for a minute. The uh, Pre-game show. And that was great. It was really, really interesting, really good content. And I would like to see some more of that. But the thing that I'd also like to see is like get some of the GMs together and HO people kind of like they do over the PBE and kind of just go over stuff like, you know, the big news in the off season, you know, predictions. Everybody goes around and gives a prediction on how the season is going to go. Just some more interactive content. I'd like to see here in the ISFL that I think the PBE just does a little bit better job at at the moment. And again, I could be I could be speaking way out of pocket, and maybe I'm just unaware of it, and it's out there. Um, but I do think, from my personal perspective, at this moment, ISFL just seems to be kind of um, getting a little bit quieter when it comes to stuff. And I think that the PBE is just doing a slightly better job. <clears throat> At the moment. Um, That could definitely change. I saw the PBE try to bring back a PBE Rewind. Watching that um, definitely wasn't as good as our stuff. I'll tell you that. It was alright though. But you know, they're trying. They're doing stuff. They're coming up with ideas. Hummus is over there super active. And this is going to sound really shitty. But I don't even... I can't tell you who the uh, uh, um, commissioner is. I don't know. And that's probably my fault. (laughs) I just haven't. Been looking, but I don't. You know, I think the fact that the PBE has the stream where they have people on there talking uh, is a big part of it. Almost is always on there, um, doing you know, commentating on games. He's always on the draft streams. Um, I didn't want. Uh, we'll have the you know with the playoffs ending. There'll be the award show and there'll be a draft show. I'll definitely need to tune in with ISFL and and see. Um, And see, you know, kind of just check out the media of those uh, broadcasts to kind of, you know, truly, again, like I said, get a really good feel for everything. So I think I'm going to get ready to wrap up here um, on this portion of my podcast. Uh, I think um, uh, I'm going to hop off, start what everybody is technically here for, and that is the ghost story. So, thank you for listening. If you think my stuff is garbage, I would be more than happy to hear it. <laughs> what I can do better in my solo podcast It's just me walking around talking or at my home talking, giving my perspective. Um, I'd like to have on more guests. Those are usually my better shows when I have guests on. And I'll definitely try to reach out and try to get some more guests on the uh, ISFL podcast Um, But if that's this is, I'd also do a PBE podcast. So hop over there, take a listen to those. I just did a big retirement podcast for IO, and I'll probably be doing another team podcast here in the near future. So thanks for listening, and stay tuned for another episode of IO's ghost stories. Welcome back to IO's Ghost Stories, as we dive into yet another spooky encounter that I have recently put myself through. If you 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 remember correctly from previous past stories, I sometimes like to dive into spooky supernatural experiences. Now, by nature, I am a little bit of a skeptic. Uh, in my profession, I have had several situations where people thought they were experiencing paranormal-like activity when in all actuality it was explainable. And I do believe that most people wish to, who, whom wish to encounter paranormal activity will. And will, their brain will talk them into it. Anytime you're in a dark room by yourself with the lights off and you're anticipating hearing ghosts, you probably will hear something. And it could be the house it could be an animal outside it could be a slew of many things it could just be that feeling of fear creeping onto your psyche now i like to put myself in interesting spooky situations but i'm also a big person on history and while looking around the area uh, a few months ago Fred and i were wanting to visit do or just Really honestly just kind of looking at spooky locations when we came across the Villisca Axe Murder House in Villisca, Iowa. Now, we live in Kansas City, Missouri and so Vallisca Iowa was about two and a half hours away north of our location and we thought that was actually not a very far place to go. And looking further into the details of the Axe Murder House, we discovered some very interesting things and visiting the website online found out that you could actually spend the night in this house for a set fee. So let's kind of dive into the Axe murders themselves. It's the year 1912 in the farming community of Aliska, Iowa. The Moore family uh, consists of Josiah, Sarah, and their three children, Montgomery, Catherine, and Arthur. uh, I'm sorry, Paul, their four children. All live in this house together. On this June 9th summer evening, it was a Sunday, they decided to go to church. Uh, the church service went uh, till about 9 o'clock, and uh, there, was a, there was two young girls, uh, neighbors, that were there at the church as well for that evening's um, service, who lived uh, in the next town approximately 10 miles away. Instead of walking all the way home in the, on a, the Sunday night, um, they decided to spend the night in the Moore house and would return home in the morning. When they came home and they went to bed, little did they know that there is someone hiding out in the attic. Now, this is an unsolved mystery. and so the identity of the murder is unknown even to this day and kind of adds to some of the mystery mystery and mystique around the house. but it is thought that, The suspect in this crime was hiding out in the second-floor attic. And then once everyone went to bed around 10, 10 that evening, he would creep out and commit some of the most heinous murders America has ever seen. The order in which he murdered the entire family, including the two visiting girls, is unclear. But having walked through the house myself, I would have to assume that he would kill the parents first. Now the specific details of the crime are such that the murderer had used an axe that was out in the barn of the house. He would use the blunt end of the axe to murder the mother and all of the children but would reverse the blade and use the blade end of the axe to murder the father. Nobody woke up during the course of these murders except the eldest daughter Uh, who did wake up and, according to some reports, had defense marks on her arm where it looks like the axe would have got her. But but with the exception of Josiah, the father, all the other victims were killed with the blood end of the axe. Now, there's some other interesting parts of this story that were of this crime uh, that kind of adds, again, to the mysterious mystique of the house. For instance, the murderer covered all of the windows and and mirrors and reflective surfaces in the house with sheets and clothing. He took a large slab of bacon and he racked it in a house towel and put it at the foot of the bed of the two visiting uh, ladies that were sleeping in the first floor bedroom. It is said that he positioned the family and odd and provocative manners. He would then make himself a bowl of food in the kitchen where he left the bowl bloody with the blood from his victims before finally leaving and never to be seen or heard of from <clears throat> again. Now this is 1912 Iowa and there really wasn't much of a law enforcement presence. And the lone deputy um, was a little bit uh, overwhelmed, and uh, basically the entire house, uh, which would, would be a crime scene in this case, was contaminated by the entire townsfolk, who came and would see the show of all these murdered bodies when they woke up the next morning to come visit and see. And it took a uh, Kansas City detective two days to arrive in the town before a proper investigation would take place, but the murder weapon had already been contaminated with... with reports that townspeople were touching it and all this other nonsense, but again, you know, in the year 1912, we probably wouldn't have a lot of DNA technology that we would have today uh, that would give a modern detective an absolute heart attack if they walked into this type of a scene. But these were very brutal, very interesting murders. The headline the next day actually uh, knocked the Titanic off the headlines. Now, The interesting and kind of, again, part of the story is that there are theories on who committed the murder. And my personal belief and favorite of the suspects is Reverend George Kelly. Kelly was an English-born traveling minister who was in the town of Aliska around the times of the murders, and whose own family said that he was an odd, uh, odd person. He, uh, was about five foot two, which matched that of the physique or the size stature of the suspect. Uh, having walked through the house myself, there wasn't a lot of room, and a person about six foot, uh, six foot, which I am myself, had a hard time moving around some of the spaces of this house. And uh, Kelly was also left-handed, which, according to some of the marks and gas marks that are still left over in the house to this day, would show that it was probably handled by a left-handed assailant. But and then uh, Kelly was said to have uh, been on the train on that Monday morning and had had made mention to a couple of witnesses on the trains that eight souls have left the town of Villisca. Very ominous statement indeed. But they could never get a conviction, and uh, he did confess to the crimes during the investigation. But he then recanted his statement when he uh, they were when they refused to grant him an insanity plea, and then they were unable to prove it was actually him. The reason, I mean, you hear that, you are probably wondering, well, that's the guy, that's clearly the guy that did it. Well, don't hold, hold on, hold your hold your axes here, folks. There's another suspect. There was actually a slew of axe murders that were going up and down the trainway, the railroad way during this time that had similar modus operandi, and that suspect was William Mansfield. And their same, the same modus operandi was conducted in most of those axe murders that were going up and down the railroad. And he was eventually captured and sentenced to print in prison. Though, he never would admit that he committed the, the heinous acts in Beliska, And they could never have that it was him either. <clears throat> so, here's a house with a very tragic story and pretty heinous murders, to be honest. Unsolved, with a ton of mystique. But the story gets a little bit better. So, there, the, the house was sold, obviously, several times between 1912 and today, and there was a couple of stories in which families would move in where they would actually not disclose the history of the home. In a cliché movie-like fashion, there were said to be families that moved in and would then move out in the middle of the night, never to be seen it again. There was, actually, there was uh, one family that lived there for 12 years and said nothing ever happened in the house, and then there was another family that definitely said that they lived there for several years and there was always crazy things happening within the house. In 2014, a man was visiting the house to spend the night um, in the house, and he brought with him a knife. He then went into the downstairs bedroom where a lot of uh, activity is said to happen, and he started provoking the spirits. He then would wake up in the hospital with a wound in his chest. He said that he went in there to provoke the spirits, and he woke up in the hospital. Now, me, when I heard this story, I said, well, this is clearly just some nut who's looking to... Add to the mystique of the house, so he went there to commit. You know, maybe he was already suicidal. He went to go kill himself. Well, what better way to to kill yourself than to stab yourself in the chest in the middle of of an axe murder house? Well, apparently, he didn't speak about the incident for eight years. And all these other ghost shows, ghost adventures, ghost hunters that would visit this house would always reach out to him to speak, and he never once did. So he really wasn't looking for infamy. Finally, just a couple of years ago, he did return back to the house and the owner says that he found him apologizing to the house and he was actually brought there as an invite from 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 one of the ghost shows i think ghost lab was the one that finally got him there and when he and the owner walked up and said man why did you do what you did and he said uh, you know i didn't do it um and the no, no reason why i haven't came back is you know that out of the fear of the house and the no reason why i came back after all this time is to apologize And you know, this individual was in the 60s at the time uh, there have been two other self-mutilations done in the house while spending the night. Um, Ian, the house is still available to rent. So, my friends and I, uh, three fr- or two friends and then our wives, so six of us, decided to be a fun weekend trip to take up to the Liska. So we went up uh, one Saturday night. We actually made the reservation uh, maybe four months ago and decided it would be fun. I brought a bunch of my... Equipment, including several Go GoPros, some tablet, cell phones, flashlights. Uh, my friend actually even bought uh, brought an EVP recorder or an electronic voice phenomenon recorder, which is just basically a handheld digital recorder that we would use throughout the house. I brought uh, mics that uh, I would hook up to my laptops to record in rooms, and we kind of really did the whole kit and caboodle when it comes to ghost hunting, so to speak. Now the house is built in 1912, and they kind of keep it in its state of 1912. Um, and so it has a lot of old equipment, old furniture, and I mean, you get there, and, you, and I do gotta say, uh, you do kind of have a weird kind of feeling about the house. It's very old and moody. If you're listening, I know it's not as old in England, English time, English timelines, but it's old for us, 1912, especially kept in a in a in, in, a, in a manner that um, kept it in, in a. You know, it's been obviously fixed up, but it's been tried. They tried to keep the the house the way it was in the time of the murders, now that it's a sort of a sideshow. And it did have a weird feeling about it. They definitely, you know, there's a bunch of. uh, They let people bring dolls and toys to to play with the the kids, because obviously there was, uh, you know, the six deaths of children in the house. And that kind of adds to the creepy factor. And you do get kind of a sense of, I don't know, sadness. And there's no electricity in the house, except for one extension cord that's spotted through the window. So there's no lights. So we had some lanterns and flashlights and uh, all that stuff. So we kind of set up shop around 4 o'clock and just kind of settled in. um, Set up some cameras and kind of just had some snacks and really just kind of killed some time before it started getting dark. And to be honest with you, there really wasn't much that happened during that time. And uh, me personally... Um, I had some weird feelings, Um, again it could be just me, you know, being in a dark, spooky, lightless house anticipating looking for ghosts and then just kind of created and added to that creepy factor, but my friends had some interesting aspects. Now, let me say this. So one of my friends is like me. He is uh, in, um, uh, he deals with this kind of stuff. He was a detective for several, several years um somewhat of a skeptic not somebody who you know gets into the paranormal and spooky stuff uh, another friend actually is a big is also a big skeptic who hates the paranormal and only went because his wife wanted to go my wife uh was raised in fake haunted houses her father owned um those amusement type on houses where you go pay and have people jump out at you during halloween time so she was raised around kind of spooky stuff but didn't really believe in doesn't really believe in the true paranormal or real ghosts. And then we did have one very um, sensitive, I guess, person. She herself was actually a ghost, uh, part of a paranormal uh, investigator group several uh, years ago, and has been to several haunted locations. Now, we were walking through the house on the first tour when she went up to the upstairs children's bedroom. Uh, She said that she felt um, like somebody had whispered um, behind her and that's someone that and then something had brushed up against her now I don't know again if this was just her wishing to experience something or she really did I can't say I was in the same room at the same time and the tour guide was you know ob- the tour guide was obviously trying to make things spooky. And telling us spooky anecdotes about he's actually been um, watching the house or being the caretaker of the house for 20 years and all his his personal experiences which were many and then um, so as the night kind of progressed we moved uh, from room to room and doing several different EVP sessions and uh, you know I would Put up the cameras in different rooms some cameras. I'd put up where we were when we were conducting um, Interviews and then I would put them in other places of the house where we weren't to just see if anything would happen So we're sitting downstairs and really one of the interesting things about the house too is that there's this basket Of uh, handwritten letters from all uh, previous people that have stayed in the house where they they talk about their experiences and so um, my 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 friend's wife, who is a school teacher, was reading these. He's actually an English teacher, so she found it very 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 interesting to read these these notes. And they were they were very very interesting. Um, talking about their experiences, some of them were very like at, you know at seven p.m. we heard footsteps. At eleven p.m. we heard voices, and they were very you know organized. So you're kind of reading through. When my friend Chris, who is the one that is uh, didn't you know kind of came because his wife came not really into the paranormal, um, and kind of a skeptic himself. He kind of stands up, he kind of starts stretching his uh, his back. You know, we've been sitting in this very uncomfortable furniture, when all of a sudden he kind of gives a little shout-up. Oh. He's clearly disgruntled, or not disgruntled, but clearly just disheveled a little bit, and uh, freaked out. He says that he heard somebody breathe on him not necessarily felt something but kind of just heard and he described as sort of a "Ah," on the back of his neck i mean it spooked him it made him jump out of his shoes a little bit and keep in mind by this time we've been in the house for several hours and nothing has happened um like that and you know what's funny about my friend here is that prior to that experience He'd never, He's never talked about the paranormal in the past and ghosts or anything of that nature from the years that I've known him, but now, like, he is so into it. And he wants to go visit more houses and more uh, paranormal locations and buy more equipment. Like, it it freaked him out, but it, like, got him to a place where, like, he wants to experience it again, in a sense. And that was his kind of... Because he, he could hear it audibly, too, and then... He is also the one that, you know, brought the, um, digital recorder, and during the course of a few EVP sessions, you could, you could hear something. There was a particular session where we were upstairs, and, uh, you heard clapping. You heard a, you know, as we're talking, asking questions, you heard a... on the recording that I don't recall hearing at the time of the recording. And we also, re, you know, had a few, um... You know whispers uh, that were captured on the EVP. That again, I don't recall ever hearing at the time. So then we kind of had our um, our big ex- our big experience, so to speak. I guess you could say. Um, in that we're upstairs in the again uh, children's bedroom. We just got done doing a interview EVP session. Nothing nothing of note happens, and we decided to go downstairs. Well, leading the way is my my friend, the prior detective and person, um, you know, probably one amongst the bravest of us all, and someone who, obviously, at this point, since it's about 11 o'clock, with no experiences to himself, was kind of getting a little, I don't want to say discouraged, he was having, we were all having fun, we were drinking and talking and, you know, just... We get, you know, away from our kids, and just having a kind of a good night, but you could just maybe tell that he was kind of hoping something that would happen, but, um, as they're going down the stairs, they kind of whine a little bit, and he's leading the way, and then I'm probably third back, and you hear him again, you see you hear a shot. ha! Ah. And he jumps, and he almost kind of, like, falls down the stairs, and, he, you know, I ask what's wrong, and he says that there is a shadow that just ran in front of him, in the downstairs, where the, the stairs lead down to the kitchen, he said he, was, he saw what was a shadow that kind of ran ran across from him, and I asked him what it looked like, and he said it was like flesh, cover, uh, flesh colored um, that ran into the into the living room area and you know he then starts rationalizing, well maybe it was a cat, because there was this barn cat that kept getting in the house and I knew exactly where the cat was the cat was upstairs on the bed I knew, I knew it wasn't the cat and he starts like, but you kind of re- recall earlier in the night when the caretaker was telling the stories of the house that one of the main experiences is something that people experience with a shadow figure now the story goes with the reverend that when he was walking to the house, a shadow figure appeared from the barn, handing him the axe and told him to commit the deed, and that's why he did it. And that's one—that was one of the original statements that he gave prior to recanting it, of course. And so there's always these stories of these shadow figures or whatever you want to call them. And now my friend, who again we've been here since four o'clock in the afternoon, it's now eleven p.m. that night. Has not we've not had a single, or I, I shouldn't say that he hasn't had a single. Incident or experience that's really kind of gotten him going on anything now going down the stairs. He has What's called a shadow what he thought was a shadow that just darted across them So then I asked them being detectives before declaring hundreds and hundreds of houses uh, in our profession, you, you, you'll you get a call to a house and before you can investigate the crime scene, you have to clear the house. And sometimes it's not a house, sometimes it's a it's a big building, it's a big factory, and you gotta clear it to make sure there's no, uh, no people there before you start investigating the crime scene. And so I've walked through hundreds of spooky, dark houses and spooky, dark buildings, and I've never had any experiences while well doing that. And I asked him, I said, hey, if you were to be clearing this house for any suspects, would you have chased after what you saw? And he said, yeah. I said he would have. He would have believed there was a person in the house that would have chased after it. And so, to, even to this day, I ask him, why does he keep rationalizing it? And, he, and I think it's just, I think he's trying to, I think he might have had something happen. Some, you know, call it paranormal, call it what you will. He had something happen to him, and now I think he's just kind of rational, over-rationalizing it. Because he almost fell down the stairs, he was so spooked by what it was. So when we decided to kind of bunk up for the night, we all, and uh, there's no, you know, the house does have a a singular window unit that's using electricity from the neighbors uh, with lights next to the, the single extension cord that's brought into the house. But other than that, there's, it's cold. <laughs> it was warm earlier in the day and it was cold. There's no central air. And so we all decided to to, to blow up our matches and sleep in the parlor, which is the downstairs area. That's adjacent to the bathroom, I'm sorry, the kitchen and to the downstairs bedroom where the two girls were killed and where a lot of uh, paranormal activity is said to occur. And sleeping in the house was difficult, I will say. You get this very uneasy feeling. And the thing that bothered me the most about it was I didn't see anything. But having been doing my profession for as long as I have, I kind of have what I call kind of a sixth sense. Where I can kind of feel when somebody's, like, looking at you. And that's sort of the feeling I had all night to where I didn't want to turn my back. On the doorway and it was it was it was difficult to sleep Um, again Chris as he's sleeping says he starts hearing footsteps in the kitchen keep in mind we can see into the kitchen there's nobody in the kitchen there are footsteps was it the house settling Or was Chris hearing footsteps? It's a good question. So then I do finally sleep for three hours before we wake up the next morning to pack up and go. And as we're leaving, you know, you're looking at the windows and you're looking at the house and you kind of just sense something, you know? And again, is it your imagination? be I, don't, I, I could say that I personally didn't have any significant experience um, that I had in real time I will say that some of the recordings and video that we observed were interesting there was a video of an orb there's the audio of the clapping there's the audio of whispering that wasn't anybody in the room there's the experience that Chris had of someone breathing on his neck. And there's the shadow figure that my friend um, experienced. But my wife and I didn't didn't have any experiences. And well, we're really the only ones that didn't. Everyone else seems to have taken something from the house. Now, these aren't hardcore ghost adventure, ghost hunters. These are parents that work nine to five jobs that we just decided to do a weekend trip, and it was—it was. I would definitely do it again, and I'm already investigating, looking at the Sally House as the next location to spend the night and investigate, which is in Atchison, Kansas. It seems like it might be kind of a fun thing to do, and trust me, I want to have an experience that I could tell you guys, and I really hope to have it. And I'm not dis—I'm not discrediting my friends. I do believe that they experienced what they said that bel- what they experienced. They're not strangers that are all. Hopped up on a trail in or, you know, alcohol or whatever that are just telling me crazy stories. I believe that they experience what they experienced. And so I hope to experience them as well. Maybe we'll visit the Belvoir Winery here in Liberty, Missouri, close to Kansas City, Sally House and Natchez, in Kansas. So that will conclude this uh, segment of Iowa's Ghost Stories. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed. If you're interested, there's a lot of really interesting YouTube videos regarding the Axe Murder House in Villisca, Iowa. I would definitely recommend checking them out. It is a very interesting house um, with a lot of interesting history. And, of course, the murders themselves are extremely sad, dark, and mysterious. So join me next time. Hopefully I'll have more for you in the coming months. Um, and of course, come Halloween, I'll have more ghost stories to tell you. Thank you again. This is IO Torrent logging off.